Good morning, everybody. All right, we're going to wrap up our series this morning on Relay. What we've been talking about the last several weeks is the idea that built into our DNA in terms of our faith is this idea of passing it on. And so we looked the very first week at several passages from the Apostle Paul where he talked about the idea of something was handed to him, and the language that he uses is it was entrusted to him as a deposit, and his goal is then to pass it on to reliable people. And so you have this idea of it being transferred from one person to the next to the other, and in it what we recognize is that we have this, this uh, what we've been entrusted with, we don't have the liberty of changing it or disregarding it or tinkering with it or altering it. Now, that's not to say that we can't continually re-examine our faith and try to better understand the message and doctrines of Scripture, and even in that, to recognize, man, we live in a time and age that even 50 years ago they did not have available to them in terms of scholarship and archaeology and ancient manuscripts. But the very core of our faith, when I'm talking about the the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, when I talk about the divinity of Jesus Christ, we really aren't free to go, eh, I don't know if I really like that doctrine. I think we'll just kind of cut that one out. No, no. We have been entrusted with a deposit that our task is then to pass it on to a subsequent generation. So the working metaphor we've been discussing is that of a relay race. And we are presently running just one leg of that race. And just as the baton has been passed to us, as we're turning that corner, we want to pass the baton off to another generation of believers and to pass it with skill and swiftly without dropping the baton. Because it only takes one generation to drop that baton to have devastating effects on the church. Like just one generation here at the Living Stones Church, it will have devastating effects on us as a church or even on our faith at large. And what that means is, We've been asking some pretty big questions over the last two weeks, and we'll continue to ask them this morning. And so while we are talking about this idea of not dropping the baton and faithfully passing on our faith to the next generation, uh, let me pause for just a moment and do a little bit of in-house conversation type of things going on. Uh, I want to talk about our student ministries for just a moment, if I could. Let me begin with our element. Now, if you're not aware, element is from 5th to 8th graders is an element, and they meet on Wednesday nights back here at 6.30 in the blue building that we call the pit. If you've got any elementary or any uh, junior high kids, you should bring them to element. Now, John Matthews is the one who's leading element, and here's what you need to know. They are bursting at the seams in regards to kids showing up. Like, it's just in terms of growth, just more and more junior high kids, which is fantastic, right? That's a great problem to have. In fact, even they had a service night. Listen, a service night where they all went to the Northern Indiana Food Bank to work, and they had over 35 kids show up just for the service night. Now, here's the problem. They had so many kids that they had to make several trips to get them there from here to the Northern Indiana Food Bank because we don't have enough volunteers, adult volunteers, with Element. So here's what I'd say to you. We have got a growing, expanding junior high group called Element that could use adult volunteers to come in and help lead and help minister to and help love on those junior high kids, which is, a, it's a shocking thing, but they really are a very lovable age. They are, right? They just, they really are. Especially if they're not yours, you'll find that it really goes well with you in terms of just dealing with junior high kids. And so here's what I'd say. If you have a heart, passion, and desire to maybe work with junior high kids, you should see John Matthews. And uh, Alex, if you would mind putting his picture up here on the screen. You see it down there? There you go. That's John Matthews. He was just singer over here. Good-looking guy. Just see John Matthews and tell him you are interested. I know my daughter, Alex, who's in the back, is in Element and loves it. In fact, so much so that uh, her father, the pastor of the church here, um, 
It was uh, Isaac's birthday, my oldest son's birthday, and uh, we were, it was on a Wednesday night. We're all going to go to Fiesta Tapatia, which is the best Mexican restaurant here in South Bend, uh, to eat dinner. And uh, wasn't sure we could get back in time for Element. And so I was trying to talk my daughter, the pastor, was trying to talk his daughter into skipping youth group that night, just because it's Isaac's birthday, the whole family's together. And she just refused, just wouldn't allow it, just no. And so we had to leave Fiesta Tapatia to bring Alex back here to youth group. And so great time. So just you should be a part of that, uh, especially if you are college-aged. Like I'm not trying to cut anyone else out, but if you're like in your 20s especially, let me tell you, uh, you are on the cutting edge of coolness with uh, junior high kids and you should consider that. Okay, now on the other side, let me talk about our seismic student ministry, which is for us, our high school students, which at the moment is non-existent. Okay? Now, Greg Arenas, who's done an excellent job leading it, had to transition now in terms of getting a new job and his son going off to school, and for a variety of reasons, uh, diverse reasons, every adult volunteer was no longer available, and during the summer times, it was hard to get more than about five or six kids to show up. Very low turnout. So as we entered into the fall, we just decided to bring it to a close for now, which is the first time in my 19 years of being here that we've ever not had a official high school ministry. And the thing is, if you look at our attendance here at the church, we actually have a lot of high school kids here. Like there, it's not that we don't have high school kids at the Livingstones Church. We actually have quite a few of them. But you can't have a high school ministry without a leader, without adult volunteers, and without students and families who are willing to be committed to participating in it. So. I want you to know that when we talk about passing on the faith, this is not an ideal situation and something that we ought to remedy. And so I need you as the church here to be praying for leadership and volunteers and a rejuvenation of energy and motivation of our teens to participate in youth group experiences. And I'm going to have conversations with our students and families, but leadership is the key. So let me just say this, is God calling you maybe to an area of leadership with high school students, who is also a fantastic age to work with. Now, let me say something to the codependent personalities in the room for just a moment. If you heard this and thought, ooh, something to rescue, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to people who like, no, you really feel like God has placed a legitimate calling and passion and excitement. Do you have a spiritual gift set that lends itself to student ministry? If you do, come and talk to me. That would be fantastic. Or if you want to mention something to John, who was on the screen just a moment, that would be great. But we've been talking now. There he is. So you, what do you think, John? You think you look good? You look good, man. Good, good looking picture. We've been talking now for the past couple of weeks about lots of different things here at the Livingstones Church, that when you actually read the scriptures, you will find that it doesn't tell us an exact how-to to do a lot of different things which means we're free to re-examine everything that we do and ask, should we keep doing it like this? Or maybe things around us have changed to such an extent that what used to be effective is no longer effective. And so in that, if ideas have come to your mind, if thoughts have come into your brain, if you have something that you're like, oh my goodness, I think this would be fantastic at the Livingstones Church, you should talk to the people who are in those areas of ministry and service here and share those ideas and kind of help us continue this conversation of how we should do things. So things like this. If uh, Let me introduce Carla Meyer. This is Carla Meyer's picture here. She's sitting right over here. She leads our first impressions ministry. So if you are like, you know what, I have a lot of money. I'd like to invest in a cappuccino machine. Carla Myers is the person that you should talk to. So in the middle of the sermon, you can hear a <laughs> you know that sound that the cappuccino, like, I won't imitate it. Like, Or maybe 
you have an experience that you went to another church and they did something that was just amazing, like, like wowed you, like you should say to Carl, you know what, I was at this other church uh, and this is what they did and I thought it was the coolest thing and as a first time guest it just made me feel like, th- like you should tell Carla all those ideas because she'll get really excited and, and, and passionate about it and it kind of helps move us forward as a church in regards to those sorts of things. This is David Chokey, next is on the screen. David Chokey leads our I Love Southside ministry, which is service to our neighborhoods and to our communities. What that means is if there's something that you thought of that you can think of, oh my goodness, it'd be such a huge blessing to our schools or to our neighborhoods or to our community or to that apartment complex. If we did this, you should see David Chokey in that regard. The next is Jeff Gritton. He leads our groups. So if you're like, I would love to lead a group, or I have an idea for a group, or I saw this one time at a church, and this worked great for me and helped me grow and mature in my relationship with Jesus, you should see Jeff Gritton. Next up here is Meredith Waltman. See Meredith Waltman up there? Today's her birthday. So if you see Meredith Waltman today, tell her happy birthday. If we've been talking about passing on the faith, talking a lot about children, if you have ideas or thoughts in regards to children, you should see Meredith Waltman. Next on the screen is Wayne Carner. That's Wayne. So come in for just a moment. And the next picture is Chad Herman, the good-looking guy who just did the communion comments. Those two guys are in charge of our building and grounds, and they got specific divisions in that. But if you have things that you're like, you know, I can do this, I love to do this, or I saw that this was broken, or these two urinals in the men's bathroom are so close together, I can separate them. If you have any of those ideas or thoughts, (laughs) you should see one of those guys in terms of doing those sorts of things. Denise Neal is next. She leads our intercessory ministry. If you have experience or thoughts or a heart passion for prayer and intercession and what that might look like here at the Living Stones Church, you should see Denise Neal. The next is Matt Esau, which I, we introduced last week and announced he's starting to take over in terms of worship. So if you play the bagpipes, you must see Matt Esau immediately because we need a bagpiper up on the stage. You'll also notice next, sporting the Cubs jersey, which we very much appreciate. She's trying to get a raise. It's Janae G. And so if uh, you have thoughts in terms of communication or outreach or generally uh, just getting stuff done, which is like, if you ask me, like, what is Janae? She gets stuff done. That's what Janae does here on staff. You should see Janae. Chris Ballard is in charge of our care ministry, which does a host of things, even secret things that nobody knows about. So if you're, like, interested in the CIA but helping people, care ministry is how that works out in terms of giving cards and meals and all sorts of things to provide care and help for people here at the Living Stones Church. Jeff Hammett is in charge of our stewardship ministry. So if you have a million dollars you'd like to donate to the Living Stones Church, see Jeff Hammett. Or if you're an accountant, if you're just very good at systems and structures and you have ideas and thoughts on software, Jeff Hammett is the guy to see. And you got Angie is here next, and she is both the administrative wing of the church and uh, knows everything. So if you have anything that you want to know by way of information or how things work here administratively, have this idea, see Angie. And you probably have seen her elders, but just in case, let me show you their faces up here. You got Chuck Barrington sporting the Purdue sweatshirt for some particular reason when we took pictures. This is Randy Templeton. This is Jeff Gritton. This is Jim Ruth. And this is Jim Silk. All of them, I cannot say enough about in regards to how excellent our elders are here. Like, I just, I cannot say enough about, I would trust all five of these men, anything that might be going on in your life in terms of spiritual and pastoral care, uh, I don't know of any church who's equal in regards to caliber of spiritual leaders than our elders. And so, these are the leadership here at the Living Stones Church that I would highly encourage you, as we have these conversations and ask big questions, see these people in regards to leadership and ministry and ideas that might come your way. Now, that was uh, back to what we're talking about. 
Now, the way the church has been in terms of growth in two major forms that we've been talking about is both biological growth and conversion growth. Biological growth is having a lot of kids and raising them in such a way that they become adults uh, and own the faith for themselves. And so, uh, remember, if you were here last week, uh, we had our child dedication uh, service, fantastic morning as we dedicated the cutest babies in the history of all churches. And so I want to say just a word to the families and parents involved last week. Um, I was very impressed uh, by how serious you took both the promises and the vows that you made, which I think is just fantastic, just like just as a pastor, just, just makes my heart uh, just to see how serious you took that and it was wonderful. On the other side is conversion growth. What that means is someone converts or finds Jesus in Christianity from a means outside of their biological family. Later in life, maybe through a friend, a church, a life experience, out of the, out of the proclamation and demonstration of the faith. And as we've been discussing, the difficulty that we have is that the Bible itself is divided on biological and conversion growth. When you read the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, it is all about biological growth. Not one word about conversion growth whatsoever. Now, when you get to the New Testament, it is all about conversion growth and not a single word about biological growth. So what that means is we're living a New Testament faith without a single example of how to raise a second generation of believers. Now, that doesn't leave us in despair. It just simply means there is no one way in which we should do things. And thus, we are free through discernment and wisdom and prayer and revelation of the Holy Spirit and learning best practices to figure out how we best raise up a new generation of believers. And so it leads us to ask, how should we do this at Livingstone's Church, given our time and our place and our culture and our context, and what might have worked 20 years ago might not work today? So there you go, the longest introduction and summary where we've been now onto the topic at hand this morning. Let's talk about conversion, growth, and discipleship. Conversion, growth, and discipleship. Now, Judaism like kind of the, uh, where, where we began in terms of Christianity. Judaism, Judaism is very much a reclusive faith. And by that I mean there is no real impetus for conversion. That's why you never have two Jews knocking on your door and asking you if you've ever uh, accepted the Torah as your personal guide and authority. And they don't say, here, pray this prayer with me. Judaism pretty much is God called us by way of race, and he didn't call you, which is too bad. Now pass the matzah. That's kind of Judaism in a nutshell. Christianity, on the other hand, is what we call an apostolic faith, meaning it has a sending out quality to it. And we get this from Jesus himself. Jesus will send out his disciples, not like, hey, you guys are the holy huddle that I chose you. Don't tell anyone else. No, no. Jesus takes that holy huddle of 12, and he sends them directly out to go affect the entire planet. And so uh, examples of Jesus sending out in this apostolic way, Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 9. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, now here's his instructions, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go. You see that apostolic nature? Go. I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you, which is my favorite part of the whole passage, eating and drinking whatever they give you. 
for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the, now this says, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. And then he ends the gospel in Matthew. Matthew ends his gospel in chapter 20 by verse 19. He says this. This is that outward apostolic sending nature. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so then when you turn to the book of Acts, it is the story of this amazing apostolic nature of the church as it is scattered sometimes through persecution or whether it's sent through missionary journeys throughout the entire Roman Empire proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God. And the result is conversion growth. And so you'll see this language in Acts all the time. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And the Lord added daily the number to their number those who were being saved. And so it leads us to go, well, what did they do? Like what did they what exactly did they do? Well, it doesn't really exactly say. And you could see several things at work. You can see that there's a proclamation of the good news of Jesus, and there's also demonstrations of the kingdom of God, things like healings and casting out demons and miracles and those sorts of things. So you kind of see, it doesn't tell us exactly, but what you could see is there is word and proclamation, and there is power in regards to demonstration. And these two things are still critical for us in 2015 here at the Living Stones Church. In an attempt to figure out what to do in regards to proclamation, you probably know this if you have any background in churches, the church has done a lot of different things when it comes to being evangelistic. In fact, when I say the word evangelism, I'm going to assume for most of you something comes to mind when I say the word evangelism. And I'm also going to assume that what comes to your mind probably is not all that positive, right? If I had to just, if we were just to sit down around coffee and talk about it, when you hear the word evangelism, something largely negative might come to your mind. Maybe for you, you picture uh, knocking on people's doors and when they answer, asking them if they've ever received Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, because that works really well, right? I mean, and then, you know, then the door slams in your face. Or maybe for others of you, it is handing out gospel tracts to people maybe largely strangers, or maybe you were instructed to kind of leave it on the table when you go out to eat for the waiter or waitress to have a gospel tract that they can read, which, by the way, if you just leave a gospel tract and no tip, you will burn in hell. Like, you just need to know that in terms of how it works. Or maybe in your mind, what comes to your mind is awkwardly confronting someone, asking them, if you were to die tonight, would you know that you're going to heaven for sure? And then trying to get them to pray a prayer. And there's about a bazillion other ways that the church has tried to do evangelism, from comic books to call centers. What that leads us to ask, in terms of how do we proclaim our faith in 2015 here at the Living Stones Church? And, and I've always been more inclined to a spirit-initiated and appointed approach that kind of uses your specific personality. And what I mean by that is, you know, sometimes like when you have to go confront somebody almost like a sales pitch to a complete stranger, it's awkward. And even the most extroverted personalities can start to get a little bit anxious and nervous in that. And if you're introverted, you're like, I want to puke right now, right? That's what, how that works. And I totally get that. Like, and I just, I'm not sure that the Holy Spirit is pushing you to the point of vomiting. Like, I think we could do this in such a way where no, I just, I'm going to ask the Spirit of God to give me opportunity with like people I know. And then I'm going to live my life every day with just eyes open to that possibility. And when it arises naturally, I'm going to enter right into it and see if I can't share something about my own faith and my own convictions in a very natural context so that it's not like forcing 
a gospel tract on somebody or forcing somebody you don't even know to talk about something very personal like their religious convictions. But it comes right naturally. It's inspired by the Spirit, initiated by the Spirit, and coming right naturally into that. But I think if you pray and, and, and if you ask, I think God will provide those opportunities. But I do want to say this. It will require your words. Like proclamation ultimately will require your words. You will have to say something about your faith or about Jesus or about the kingdom of God. And the reason why I say this is because I think there's often this misconception that among Christians especially that if we could just be nice enough or good enough or smile enough that eventually over enough period of time your coworkers are going to come to you and say, you know what, I need you to tell me about Jesus because you're just so nice. Like, and, and I'm telling you, that doesn't happen ever. Like you, you're not so nice that one day your coworker is just going to come up and say, I think I should get baptized. Could you take care of that for me? Like I just, that doesn't happen. Or like if we just demonstrate honesty, like someone's going to go, oh my goodness, I've never seen anyone so honest in my life. You must be a follower of Jesus. Please tell me how I get there. Like, like if you're at Chick-fil-A and they give you too much change, and when you say to the person behind the counter, you gave me too much change, they will not say, what must I do to be saved? That won't happen, right? And the reason why is, one, you are in Chick-fil-A, they are already saved, right? Do you not hear the worship music playing on the PA? Like, they're all saved. My pleasure. But two, no one in having returned the $1.23 ever thinks, here's my moment of salvation. Here is water, what doth preventeth me from getting baptized? That's not going to happen. You're going to have to open your mouth and allow the Holy Spirit to use your words to say, I remember when I was going through the exact same thing in my own life. And it was dark, and I was depressed. And I want to share with you just this is how my faith helped me through that time. You'll have to use your words. That's a proclamation of the kingdom of God. It might be for you inviting somebody to church. Maybe it might be inviting somebody into your group here at the, here at the Living Stones Church. It might be inviting somebody just to, to come alongside you in a service opportunity that takes place here. But you'll have to use your words. That is the proclamation of the kingdom of God. We see that in the book of Acts. And even though it doesn't tell us exactly how that should look, it's still important for us today. But on the flip side is power. And these are the demonstrations of the kingdom of God. And those are also important. And listen to me. When we as a church serve our community in any particular way, it is a demonstration of the kingdom of God. When we demonstrate unity in the midst of what would be natural animosity, whether it's racial or economic or social or Cubs fans versus Cardinal fans, maybe even Michigan fans. Did you see that last night? But when we see that people who don't belong together, like people who like country music and those who do not, when they could come together under the name of Jesus, it is a demonstration of the kingdom of God. When forgiveness is extended towards those who have really hurt us, and I mean really wounded us, it is a demonstration of the kingdom of God. When we pray for healing and God answers, it is a demonstration of the kingdom. When someone is delivered from the demonic, when someone overcomes an addiction, when someone is rescued, I mean quite literally from the circumstances of poverty or broken relationships, and then they find abundant life in Jesus, that is a demonstration of the kingdom of God. And these are, are, and these are all just some of the means by which we see people here at the Living Stones Church experience con, con, conversion growth. And we must continue to ask ourselves, how are we doing? And can we do this better? And is there a better way, given our time and our place and our context and our culture, what is the Spirit of God saying to us now and leading us in this particular way? And so biological conversion growth are very important. But then that leads us to ask this question, but then what? 
all right, somebody just gave their life to Jesus. Now what? And so you have this amazing story of conversion provided for us in the New Testament. People encountering the resurrected Lord Jesus and confessing him as Lord, getting baptized, confessing faith. And now what? What do you do next when someone gives their life to Jesus? What is the end goal? And I think, listen for just a moment, I think this could be one of the greatest misunderstandings of our faith, especially when it comes to conversion growth. We tend to think that the end goal is just someone making a one-time decision for Jesus. Here, pray this prayer, or accept Jesus into your heart, or confess him as Lord, or get baptized, and and we kind of go, ta-da, you did it. Like that's the end goal of what it is that we're shooting for. As if the whole point is acquiring a baptism certificate so that when you die, you can show God your certificate. He has to say, oh, well, come on in. I guess I have to let you in. Like, that's not the end goal. The goal is not fire insurance from hell. The goal is for your life to look like Jesus. In whatever particular context you find yourself by way of gender, life setting, occupation, the word that's used is you are a disciple. And that word has to have meaning. To be a Christian is not just to declare that you were a person who made a one-time decision for Jesus. It is to declare that you are a student of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus in which his life and his teachings and his emphasis and his perspective and his heart and his worldview is becoming mine. That you might not be there just yet, but more and more your life looks more like his. You treat your co-workers like Jesus would treat them if he had your job. You parent your children like Jesus would parent his children if he had your kids. You interact with your neighbors like Jesus would. You respond to your enemies like Jesus would. The way you see people more and more is just like Jesus would. What you post on Facebook looks more and more like what Jesus would post on his account, which is probably largely personality quizzes and cub memes, but that's what he would post and that's what you post. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. You see, it's a process. Like, this is the, the ta- like, as we contemplate the glory of Jesus, our own lives are being transformed more and more into his likeness and ever-increasing glory. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Or he'll say in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You see, being transformed into Christ's likeness is not just being done with a list of sins in your life. It's about having his heart and his emphasis and about being committed to seeing the kingdom of God advance here on earth just like it is in heaven, which then should lead us to ask the question, so how did the early church do that? Like, what does the Bible tell us about how we should help people grow in their faith? What does the Bible tell us we should do to help people mature and grow in their discipleship? You know what the answer is? You know what the answer is? You know what the Bible says? Just about nothing. True story. The Bible doesn't really tell us how this looked or what we should do. It's like the amazing story of all this conversion, and then the story just kind of, it kind of ends. And then Paul responds to church problems, but in the end, it never tells us, like, step one, do this, step two, do that. Like, it just doesn't tell us, which means for 2,000 years, the church has had to ask in every generation periodically, how are we going to do this? 
Like if our goal is to see people being transformed to the likeness and image of Jesus, we should do, how about Sunday schools? Sure, you can. Sunday schools might be an effective way to help people look more like Jesus. Yeah, but what about Wednesday night Bible studies? Sure, that's a possibility. Wednesday night Bible studies might help people look more like Jesus. Now, if I might just say this, just a quick tangent with my ADD. I, I, the church is very quick to put Bible study down for everything, and I'm not really sure that the church's problem is that it doesn't have enough Bible study. Like, in fact, growing up, it, for me, it was like we had Sunday morning Bible classes, we had Sunday morning worship, we had Sunday night worship, we had Wednesday night Bible classes, and you went to youth. Like, we had Bible studies all the like. In fact, I, the church can be so fat with Bible knowledge, it has forgotten how to actually do the very, like, you do not just study the Bible for Bible's sake. You study the Bible because in the end it leads us to some sort of action. And that's, so I'm not sure Bible study is always the answer for everything. It has a purpose and it's very important, but I'm not sure it, it could just make us fat and lethargic. Back to, should a church offer groups? Sure. What about ministry opportunities? You bet. But all those things are simply our way of just trying to figure out how to accomplish the greater vision and goal of growing us as disciples of Jesus. And what may have worked 50 years ago might not be that effective today. And honestly, what might have been a brilliant and successful idea even five years ago may be waning in effectiveness today. And so I ask us again, what should we do? Because every year we have people who get baptized and we never see them again. You know, that happens here. Yeah, we just... Go through the list of people who got baptized in our baptism celebration in August. Go, whatever happened to that person? They just they just disappeared. How did they not move forward in discipleship? And these are the questions we have to ask ourselves, knowing that the church has done all sorts of we've been all over the spectrum. In fact, you know, we're kind of coming in our day and age here in America out of kind of a, a revivalistic American uh uh, understanding of religion and faith. What that means is we're kind of big on invitation, accepting Jesus in the moment, and just come down at the altar and confess Jesus, and like it's kind of an immediate kind of thing. Which I'm not saying that's wrong. That's just kind of where we came from. But if you go back like almost 2,000 years ago, like the second century, uh, when you read through the church fathers, there's a there's a uh, a book called the Apostolic Traditions. And it outlines a three-year catechesis to even become a Christian. Like, if you want to be a Christian, it's going to take you three years of catechesis and teaching and training and experiences before they even let you get baptized. And there's a whole ceremony around that. Now, I'm not advocating for necessarily either one of those. I'm just simply saying, but these are the questions we should ask ourselves. Like, how do we do this here at the Livingstones Church in 2015? And nowadays, with Internet resources and tools, I we have stuff available to us now that they didn't have just 10 years ago. Like, we could build a library of, I mean, the most brilliant thinkers and theologians in our faith. I mean, just, it's amazing what's available. But ultimately, here's what we're asking. Where is Jesus? This is the important question because you can't become a disciple of Jesus if you don't spend time with Jesus. So our primary question is, where is Jesus at? And you know this to be true in every other area of your life. Like, you can't be like your favorite athlete unless you learn from your favorite athlete, their technique and their disciplines and what exercise, what exercise routines they picked up and weightlifting routines and nutrition and what are the typical practices that they are involved for them to be who they are. Like, you can't just say, well, I'm going to be Anthony Rizzo. Like, you just can't say that without figuring out what does he do to be like him. You know, this, you cannot say, you know, well, I'm going to be a black belt in Taekwondo if you don't enter into the study and the routine and the discipline and the practice of Taekwondo. 
Well, you can't be a follower of Jesus unless you enter into the technique and the discipline and the art of being Jesus. And the only way that happens is if you are with Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves, where is Jesus? It says this in Mark chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. This is where Jesus is calling his first disciples. It says, He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. But the key thing I want you to see this is when he, he appoints twelve that they might what? Be with him. See, they can't do the other thing until they spend time with him. And so when you ask, where is Jesus? For me, immediately I think, well, I can find Jesus in the lives of other Christians. Like, this is where I think the church is so important, why community is so important, because I recognize you have the Spirit of God living in you in such a way that I see Jesus in you. And so when I'm struggling in an area of my life that I need somebody to speak into it to help guide me to look more like Jesus, like when I was like, like even when I was advocating for our elders, like I see Jesus in our elders, and oftentimes when I'm confused on something, even just directions here, I'll just trust the Spirit of God will speak to our elders in such a way where I'll hear his voice. It's important to have mentors and leaders who are farther along in this journey than where you're at. This is why Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow my example as what? As I follow the example of Christ. You hear what Paul's saying? You can follow me, and when you follow me, you'll be closer to following Jesus because that's what I'm going after. He'll say this in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 15 and 16, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. You know where else I can find Jesus? I can find Jesus in when we as a church find opportunities to serve people who are poor or broken or who are outcasts or whatever. The least of these is what the New Testament calls it. Like I find Jesus there. See, oftentimes we think, oh, well, it's a good thing the church exists to help people like that. What I'd say is, Actually, it's a good thing they exist to help us figure out how to look like Jesus because that's where we find Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself says in Matthew 25, verse 37, Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and not go visit you? And he will say back, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. I can see Jesus in the Gospels. Like when we immerse ourselves in study or examination, I see his life there. And so the question for us in 2015 are what are our practices that help us to grow like Jesus? And maybe it's Sunday school or maybe it's a whole other way of doing it. It might be Wednesday night Bible classes, but maybe there's a whole other way of doing it to help us transform and look more and more like Jesus. It might mean maybe for us we just take this very like, well, Jesus said, we ought to be a people who aren't angry in this particular way. Maybe we just start with writing down, we're like, do not be angry. Like, just, we know this from Jesus. And reading everything that Jesus says about getting angry and watching how Jesus gets angry, which we'll have like a table flipping content. Like, I don't know what it looked like, but. And then we ask ourselves, how do I typically get angry? Like, when I'm angry, how do I usually, what does that look like? Am I aggressive and bombastic and I'm yelling and throwing things? Or am I like the, I don't say anything to anybody for like a week, like it's just silent. Because like, we all have different ways that we get angry. And then we ask ourselves, when I do get angry, because you will, how do I channel this to look more like Jesus? In fact, how do I train my body and my brain to instinctively respond like Jesus in the midst of anger? Because when anger hits, if you haven't prepared, 
You're just going to go with whatever your body tells you to do. But if we could practice and prepare ourselves that when anger does hit, I have already predetermined I'm going to react and respond like this, and it will be instinctively in the nature of Jesus. It's a whole other way that we, right, we, we handle anger differently than anyone else on the face of the earth. That's what it means, become more like Christ. What does that look like? So I want to invite you into this conversation. From biological growth to conversion growth to even what it looks like, then past that at discipleship and ask, what are our best practices? What would be the most effective for our time and place? How do we engage a new generation of kids with the gospel of Jesus? What are the most powerful and effective ways to move people forward in their walk with Jesus? What teachings or what experiences have proven for us to be the most powerful in regards to transforming someone into the likeness and image of Jesus? And we could give ourselves permission that even when we answer those questions for ourselves today, we can hold it lightly enough that 10 years from now those same questions could be asked all over again and that might have different answers attached. But we're turning the corner, and we have a baton in hand, and we want to pass it off well and not drop it or fumble it in an exchange. So let us be open to a new thing that the Spirit of God might want to do in our midst for the glory of Jesus. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's just pray and ask for wisdom in that. God, we give you thanks for your patience with us and for the grace that you've extended to us. And what we ask for right now is wisdom. And we're banking on the fact that your word tells us if we lack it, that all we have to do is ask you and you'll provide it. And so we're asking. We need wisdom to answer some of these larger questions that we have as we look at the faces of our littlest ones in this place. And as we struggle to figure out how do we take the faith that's been entrusted to us and pass it on to these little ones, we want to do that well. And so would your spirit guide us and help us to discern how we might take up that mantle. And when we see people who all are around us who at this moment have not confessed your son as Lord, who might be struggling and maybe enslaved in some particular way. We want them to receive abundant life because of their confession that your son is in fact Lord. So how do we as a church do that? How do we proclaim the good news that your kingdom is here and available to everyone because you're crazy in love with them? And even beyond that, for those who do confess your son as Lord, help us to know what to do next. Like, how do we continually grow? I mean, all of us, how do we take our next steps to look like your son, Jesus? Would you teach us, give us wisdom and great ideas that I ask in Jesus' name?